0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. In this podcast, PwC's Rick Levin and Luke Cervani discuss income tax accounting considerations in respect to new guidance and the model for uncertain tax positions. Take a listen. Hi, this is Rick Levin, PwC's U.S. Tax Accounting Services leader, and I'm here with one of my fellow national tax accounting partners, Luke Cervani. Hi, Luke. Hey, Rick. We wanted to talk about <clears throat> Uh, some income tax accounting considerations with respect to new guidance that we get from either the IRS or Treasury or other sources. And we also want to talk about the model for uncertain tax positions and specifically some questions we've received around some application of the administrative practices and precedents in the context of specific area within the new tax law. So why don't we get started with current legislative landscape and we continue to get a lot of new Uh, guidance it's one of the things that that really strikes me about this uh, current environment that we are in post-reform mostly thus far it's been in the form of notices and we expect that trend to continue for a while so as a matter of fact you know the expectation is we will see information probably in the future quarters before the end of the year Uh, given that Luke can you share some thoughts on a question that we often get is, you know, when to account for new information associated with changes in tax laws.
1: Absolutely. Um, Let me start by saying, uh, first, that ASC 740 requires accounting that is based on enacted law as of the balance sheet date. Any future changes in tax laws should not be anticipated in the computation of the income tax provision. So, Rick, in the context of your previous comments, when new guidance is issued, it is accounted for in the period um, when when such guidance is, is actually issued.
0: Okay, so let me try to then complicate things just a little bit. In the context of U.S. tax reform, many, many companies are applying the guidance of uh, SEC Staff Accounting Bulletin, or SAB 118, and have not yet completed their accounting for a number of items, including things like, for example, the toll charge. And if you think about that in the context of what you just said, you now have potentially these developments that are uh, addressing issues, technical issues, that are within the, the period of enactment accounting, which are covered by SAB 118.
1: Yeah, the SAB, me, the sab 118 measurement period and, and the U.S. Tax Act do create some interesting dynamics here. So if you think if new guidance is issued by Treasury, for example, um, and it's impacting items that are complete under the SAB, then it should be accounted for in the period in which the guidance is issued by the Treasury or IRS. On the other hand, if you are still within the measurement period under the SAB, and new guidance is issued impacting items that are not complete under this uh, under SAB 118, then that new information, um, and that I should say, and that new information is released after the balance sheet date but before the issuance of the financial statements, we believe in, in that instance uh, companies have some flexibility. One, they can either consider the new information in the period uh, for which the financial statements are not issued and update. The provisional estimates accordingly, or they can account for the new guidance in the period um, it's issued. It's it's important to consider under either situation that I just highlighted um, to have good, appropriate, transparent disclosures.
0: And it's interesting, you know, a lot of these developments that we're getting. Part of the reason for that is there are certain discrepancies that are uh, that exist or have been identified in the existing law, and you know, many times those are uh, clearly unintended. And in fact, there's instances where you've got both Treasury or IRS officials making comments publicly about either their point of view about those discrepancies or even in some instances what their intentions are to do about it. Uh, You know, this leads to some questions from an accounting perspective. What do you do in these type of situations where the law says one thing, uh, but expectations about what's going to happen ultimately is something quite different and you know how should companies be thinking about this when when applying the model that you were describing?
1: Yeah. So I'll start by saying that the accounting model to address that situation that you just highlighted is the model to account for uncertain tax positions under ASC 740. As we know uh, you know the basic framework here there's a two-step process to account for uncertain tax positions uh, first recognition and then measurement. A tax position is recognized Um, When it's more likely than not based on its technical merits that the position will be sustained upon examination You don't consider detection risk you have to evaluate without the consideration of or possibility of, of offset or aggregation with other tax positions And you do consider past administrative practices and precedents of the taxing authority If recognition is met you move to step two measurement where you measure the amount of benefit to be recognized using a cumulative probability methodology approach but Stepping back, let's focus on what I mentioned about administrative practices and precedence now um, based on the question you raised. Administrative practice and precedence is an area that we do not see very often. It it represents situations in which a tax position is considered a technical violation of the tax law, but it's widely known and it's well understood that the taxing authority will nonetheless accept the position. Rick, you mentioned unintended um, discrepancies in the new tax law. Very recently, there's been some debate around the applicability of administrative practice with respect to the sourcing of certain income for foreign tax credit limitation purposes. And let me explain. When foreign sourcing, when foreign source earnings are included in a U.S. tax return, a foreign tax credit can be taken for the income taxes paid or accrued on those earnings in the foreign country. If a credit for such taxes is claimed, the foreign earnings included in U.S. taxable income must then be grossed up by the amount of foreign income taxes claimed, which we we refer to commonly as the Section 78 gross-up. Within the 2017 Tax Act, there was a new basket created for guilty income for foreign tax credit limitation purposes, and it's currently written the Section 78 gross-up attributable to guilty would be included, however, in the general basket versus the guilty basket. This split in the sourcing of income from a financial statement perspective could result in issues in being able to utilize foreign tax credits. We believe that in this instance, administrative practice should apply. Um, while administrative practices don't need to be sanctioned officially by the taxing authorities in formal regulation or letter ruling, it, it needs to be, it should be very clear that a tax position is more likely than not to be sustained if it's examined despite its apparent conflict with the enacted tax law as I just highlighted. Historically, the Section 78 gross-up has always been included in the same basket as the income to which the taxes relates. Further on this matter, there have been three separate panels where Treasury and IRS officials have clarified that future regulations will allocate the portion of the Section 78 gross-up, as I just described, relating to a U.S. shareholders' guilty inclusion to the guilty basket. Therefore, in this, again, very limited fact pattern, we believe, discu- you know, based on the discussions and the remarks um, that have happened in, in, in the historical precedent that that the administrative practice criteria here is satisfied.
0: And I think it's worth reiterating a point that you made earlier, um, especially in light of the fact that there are a number of issues that are very similar to the one you're describing here, um, but the application of administrative practices and precedents is typically very limited and we would normally not see that in practice very often and uh, the fact in fact the standard itself only provides two examples That's right. of when it can be applied so yeah. um, well as we know financial reporting continues to be on the top of everyone's mind as it relates to tax reform Luke thank you very much for joining me and sharing insights on a couple of very important topics related to financial reporting thanks thank you for listening to this podcast if you would like further information about this topic Please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.